Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. This is actually part two. If you are listening to this and you haven't heard part one about Mark Twitchell, our Dexter killer, you're going to need some context for this part two. It was uh, What happened was Callum, who writes the scripts here, it was so long that uh, the story was, he said, Simon... I can either break this into two parts or I can cut out a lot of interesting details. And I was like, Callum, two parts it is. So if you are hearing this part two, well, welcome. If you've been eagerly anticipating its release, if you are, if you haven't heard part one, well, I go back and listen to that right now. You've got a whole extra episode that you somehow missed. Uh, let's just do a quick recap and then we'll jump right into it. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Welcome back to the story of Mark Twitchell, writer, director, possible murderer. To recap, we have a missing man. He disappeared from a garage being used as a film set by a local director. To make matters stranger, the circumstances of the disappearance are eerily similar to the plot of his film, and he's been far from truthful in his dealings with the police. I, I remember he was being interviewed by that detective, veteran homicide detective, as I think how Callum described him, and he just made up all these crazy lies that were totally unbelievable. It's like, dude, I don't believe you. The veteran homicide detective is never going to believe you. Anyway, when we left off, the digital forensics team had just decoded some deleted documents from Twitchell's computer and recovered what Detective Clark called a diary of how he killed the guy. Ah, uh, yeah, of course, they uh, they found these deleted files. And he was like, this is the it was like a screenplay documenting, uh, you know, it starts off. This is a true story about me becoming a serial killer or some crazy sh**. Dude. We've talked about, I, I keep bringing it up, like every episode of Casual Criminals, I swear it's like, why are criminals writing down their crimes? Stop writing down your crimes. And this guy made a goddamn screenplay about his crimes. Let's go. The book. I couldn't have put it better myself. What the forensics team had found was a document entitled SK Confessions. Probably short for serial killer confessions and you'll see why. I'd hope that cliched name was just the working title, but one thing we'll never be accusing Twitchell of is originality. Savage! Once again, you can find this document online in its entirety. 42 pages of horrifically overwrought prose straight out of a film underground's waste paper basket. And once again, I've done the hard work so you don't have to. Gall yeah, I was commenting last time on last episode how Caleb, he, he watched, not watched, but he read through all of this guy's like uh, spec scripts and all of this crap that he wrote. I was like, Callum, that is dedicated. Thank you, Callum. You're the hero we need. Prepare yourself for every little detail of Mark Twitchell's descent from bang average filmmaker to atrociously unsuccessful murderer. He begins by describing the feelings of lightness when he first decided to become a serial killer like he was finally free to be himself. This meant embracing the fact that he was different from the rest of humanity, thank Christ, and couldn't feel empathy or sympathy. Ooh, edgy. Uh, but it gets better. He talks about not wanting to admit to these, thing these things to therapists because that would leave a trail of breadcrumbs, and he's not stupid. Instead, he just made a goddamn movie detailing his whole methodology and showed it to everyone he knew. There are plenty of passengers like that which have aged like milk, but if we stop to make fun of each one, we'll be here all day, so let's just move on. Also, wait, if you see a therapist... And you're like, I have a problem with feeling sympathy and empathy. And I'm thinking about, you know, becoming a serial killer. Unless you're actually going to kill someone, you have like a privacy thing, right? Because otherwise people wouldn't go to therapists. Because they'd be like, well, you're going to grasp me into the police and I'm trying to solve this problem. Or maybe like, I don't know, if someone is... I don't, I don't know how that works. Anyway, let's just move on. It's probably not something that... 
99.99999% of us are going to have to deal with. Next is the planning stage, in which Twitchell discusses choosing middle-aged single men as his targets because they had plenty of cash to steal and could be easily drawn in, led by their dicks as he so eloquently puts it. After choosing the garage as the best location for his crimes, he goes about traveling to different stores around town to pick up his murder materials. The mask, overalls, a hoodie, a hunting knife, plastic sheets, plastic bags, duct tape, a stun button, fake gun, and wild game processing kit. Oh, oh no. Wild game processing kit? Doesn't sound like, you know... That's no. Basically, everything you'd expect to find in the recommended for you section of a serial killer's Amazon account. People also bought. If you're wondering why he needs a game processing kit, Twitchell is happy to explain. He writes, There's also something more gratifying about sawing through tendons and bones with your bare hands. We're only about 10% of the way through, so if you're feeling queasy already, then you might want to take a minute. It only gets worse from here. Well, this is just fiction at this point, right? I mean, I, I, get, I get the feeling it's going to turn into fact. But he was a horribly atrocious serial killer. So maybe he just killed the one dude that we talked about last week, or maybe he didn't kill anyone. He probably killed people. This is the casual criminalist. Steel Drum was the last item to arrive at this, quote, little workshop of horrors, very clever, intended to be used as a makeshift incinerator for the body parts. Now his location was all set up, he got to work on casting his little murderous fantasy. This meant downloading software to block his IP address and setting up fake dating accounts. Over the next few days, Twitchell sieves through hundreds of messages from excitable bachelors. He picks up candidates he thinks will be easy to overpower because, as he says, I have my own fight training background, but I don't have delusions of grandeur. This writing is so weak, isn't it? Ah. Uh, I'm not sure that plastic lightsaber duels in your mum's back garden count. After a bit of digging, he found a hot date for the weekend who went by the name of Frank. Frank was given the same strange instructions we heard before. Park at the back of the house, then enter through the garage. By this point, the whole place was covered in plastic sheeting, ready to receive him. This guy was a fan of Dexter, which is why he's called the Dexter Killer, right? Dexter, very specifically, just killed bad guys, not random men off dating websites. And, and by bad guys, I mean murderers. Dexter just killed murderers. <laughs> As Frank turns off his headlights, oh, Frank, what are you doing? Why? Meet in a public place. I mean, he was right about being led by the d Think with your brain, not with your penis. As Frank turned off the headlights and walked into the garage, a masked Twitchell pressed the stun baton into the back of his neck and fired it off. As often seems to be the case in Twitchell's schemes, the results were underwhelming. Frank was just a bit bewildered and irritated rather than knocked out cold. He was like, hey, stop it. <laughs> a fight ensued, but Twitchell had no cause for alarm because in his own words, I had a distinct advantage. I was taller and outclassed him in tenacity and strength. Making use of the element of surprise, he landed a good few hits with the sign of the baton before drawing the fake gun. So yeah, the tenacity and strength was, well, you were armed with a stun baton and you were ready to attack him. He had just walked into a garage and been zapped in the neck with a baton. That is not tenacity and strength, mate. Frank stopped dead when he saw the weapon and started to comply. He got down on his knees and let Twitchell duct tape his eyes shut. A clearly frustrated Twitchell then describes how the defiant little sh** had a change of heart and ripped off the tape. Frank grabbed the gun, realized it was fake, and threw some hits, which Twitchell claims he easily deflected. Perhaps I judged this pudgy Bruce Lee too harshly. Honest, we're just reading his account of events. It's very one-sided. Cue another short struggle before Frank runs out of the garage door. Twitchell chases him down the alleyway before a couple walking down the street spotted the masked maniac bolting out onto the street. An awkward moment passes as they all stop and stare at each other while Frank disappears into the distance. Not sure what else to do at that point, Twitchell just shuffled back to his little plastic-coated corner to have a good long think about what he'd done. Surely this Frank guy is going to go to the police. 
unless, and I haven't read this before, I never do, and I'm speculating, maybe Frank isn't supposed to be on a dating website because he's married or he has a girlfriend or something, so it's going to be very difficult for him to go to the police. However, just drop off an anonymous tip. You can do something... So why does this continue? Or maybe it doesn't continue. We don't really know. Let's carry on. No, not really. That would require some self-awareness. Oh, so he didn't go back and have a think. Twitchell actually got to work stripping down the place, which I need to remind you was rented in his own name, making all of this pretty much pointless. After tossing out anything incriminating and wiping down the rest, he messaged Frank on Plenty of Fish. He told him that he knew where he lived because he had tracked his IP address, the same lie told by every 12-year-old I ever beat on Halo 3. It's like, yeah, you don't understand how IP address works. That was one of his trio of fibs, the others being that the garage didn't belong to him and that he already claimed 17 victims before. Fake it till you make it, I guess. That's what I always tell my 1.3 billion subscribers. <laughs> Thanks for the overestimation, Callum. As he drove home, he thought about how this bag would call the police. Yeah, Frank, what a douche move, reporting your own attempted murder. <laughs> Not cool. But bizarrely, the lucky escapee seems to have agreed with the sentiment. No police ever came knocking at the door, nor sniffing around the garage. I assume we're going to find out why. I wonder if my theory's correct. Not a single report from anyone involved was filed, which begs the question, what in the hell kind of kinky masked madness did that couple think they were witnessing? Their laissez-faire attitude might be down to the fact that Twitchell had sent out flyers around the neighborhood explaining that he'd be filming a thriller there. If what the couple witnessed really was just a rehearsal, then terrified Frank would surely be in line for an Oscar. Over the next few days, Twitchell was hard at work, practicing his own lines, reciting his flimsy alibi over and over again in his head. He was planning to tell the police that he had been lying to his wife about a therapy appointment in order to get some alone time, meaning nobody would be able to verify his whereabouts. So his alibi was no one. His alibi was... that makes no sense. The paper-thin alibi. That's not an alibi. There was no one. Uh, would surely have fallen apart pretty fast, but like I said, no police ever came to test it. As the days rolled on, Twitchell's anxiety subsided enough that he was confident at having another go at making his fantasies a reality. Twitchell must have had a very light, low level of anxiety. Because if I was in his position and I just attempted to murder someone, I'd just be worried about that forever. <laughs> so ends part one of the memoirs of Mark Twitchell. The Mr. Bean killer. Oh, sorry. The Dexter killer. Easy mistake to make. Yeah, because he's an amateur. Part two opens with a love story, and in true Twitchell form, a cringy cliche. Oh, my sweet Lacey, the first line reads. He then goes on to tell the story of how he met the lovely Lacey, an ex-girlfriend with whom he was still enamored while studying at university. He proceeded to charm her with a series of lies, but was disappointed to find out that she had a boyfriend. Unsurprisingly, the horrifically insecure Twitchell hated him and all of her partners who followed. Despite Lacey's romantic attachments, the two enjoyed a horrifically unstable relationship for several years until she found God and he decided he wasn't into her as much anymore. Well, that and the fact that she had discovered he lied about both his age and ethnicity for no reason at all. She cut all full contact and both went on to have their own failed marriages over the next few years. Bizarrely, in the text, Twitchell lays into Lacey's ex-husband for being a sociopath, where he literally just boasted about being incapable of empathy a few pages earlier. It's almost as if he has no idea what any of these were actually mean. Mwah! High quality writer there, Twitchell. By the time Twitchell married his second wife, Lacey was happily single, and he managed to track her down through Facebook. Infidelity is hardly the worst of crimes, but we might as well add that to the list. He exchanged some messages with his old flame and went off for a secret rendezvous while his wife Tess was three months pregnant at home. This is so bizarre, like, he's like writing these things, but what is truth and what isn't truth is confusing. 
Despite claiming to be a sociopath incapable of remorse, Twitchell ended up feeling incredibly guilty after all. He spilled the beans to his wife about the whole thing, and by some miracle, she forgave him. That sounds like fiction. Although this little episode probably explains the paragraph later in the text, in which he explains how sleeping in a separate bed from your wife and living in your own basement is totally normal, and screw you if you think otherwise. It's not totally normal. It's not. It's living living in the basement is not normal. We know that Twitchell doesn't have great impulse control, so after about a year, the Jedi Master was right back at it, swinging his lightsaber where it didn't belong. Bear in mind that right at the beginning of this memoir, he considers trying to murder cheating husbands so that he can take out the trash. The hypocrisy is strong with this one. Anyway, with that little romantic interlude out of the way, let's get back to the horror, shall we? For his next endeavor, Twitchell decided to switch out the pathetically ineffective stun baton for a pair of steel pipes. He also cooked up a fresh dating account, this time on Plenty of Fish, and wrote, I thought it was Plenty of Fish last time. Oh, who knows? And wrote the profile delicately, sweetly, as a woman would write. I swear I'm not putting words in his mouth, this is genuinely how he thinks. So strange. This one managed to rope in a mark who wasn't available on Friday, the time of Twitchell's fake psychiatry appointments. Frustrated, he made a fresh account which explicitly stated its owner was looking for hookups, not dating. He actually managed to rope in the exact same bachelor, now falling into his catfish trap for the second time. This time, with the promise of a more casual encounter, he said that he was available on Friday. On the night of the main event, Twitchell waited in his garage, dual-wielding his two pipes like he must have seen in a movie once. The man he calls Jim walks into the dark garage and calls out to see if anyone's there. Twitchell panics because he's an idiot and decides to take his mask off and introduce himself. Dude, what are you doing? You are an absolutely terrible serial killer. He explains that he's a local filmmaker setting up the garage to look like a serial killer's den. Jim was warned that someone was using the garage for the weekend, but this awkward dude was not at all what he had expected. A plaster Twitchell started showing off his fake gun and spewing lies about the lucky lady stepping out of the house for a few minutes. Amazingly, he just let Jim walk out of the door. It's not like he had a change of heart about his murderous plans, he was just really that bad at being a serial killer. Jim returned after 20 minutes and Twitchell pretended to talk to his date on the phone, telling him that she was caught in traffic and wouldn't be to make it. Jim left annoyed. Twitchell, now starting to realize he maybe didn't have it in him to emulate his TV idol Dexter, he started desperately sending out messages on Plenty of Fish to get a last-minute hookup. Literally anyone would do it at this point. But while he was scraping the bottom of the barrel for a new victim, why do you need a new victim? You've d- it seems fairly clear you can't do this. He got another stroke of luck. Jim messaged the accountant, offered to return later that evening. He didn't live far away, so it wasn't too much trouble. Jen agreed and told him that she'd be home around 9pm. When Jim arrived, back at the agreed-upon time, the slapstick slasher had hyped himself up. He struck his victim on the back of the head with a pipe and was once again shocked that real life doesn't unfold like the movies. Jim wasn't knocked unconscious. He fought back, but unfortunately wasn't able to fend off his attacker. Twitchell managed to crack his skull with the pipes. At this point in the story, the soon-to-be killer mocks his victim for bargaining for his life before describing how he stabbed him in the stomach and neck with a hunting knife. He writes, His reaction was pure Hollywood. Finally, reality was adhering to his fantasies, and everything was back on track. Twitchell had become the killer he was so pathetically desperate to cast himself as. But as we know, it wouldn't be long before the police pulled the plug on his little one-man show. Dude, you're not a serial killer. You murdered one person. You're just a murderer. Uh, That's better than a serial killer, obviously, but not in your mind. So you're a failure, even at trying to accomplish something horrific. 
The next scene in the grisly drama deals with the disposal of the body. While we move forwards, imagine yourself as Detective Clark. You've just interviewed this guy days before on suspicion of murder, and now you sit flicking through a play-by-play account of how he actually dismembered the victim. It's quite surreal. The account starts by describing the instruments in the game processing kit. Knives, bigger knives, a handsaw, and scissors. It then tells how he cut the clothes off the victim and threw them into the oil drum. Bizarrely, Twitchell decided to leave the boxes on so he didn't have to look at another man's privates while he butchered him. I'm not diagnosing him with a neurotic inferiority complex per se, but you definitely can if you want to. Yes, indeed. For the sake of decency, I won't talk about every step and cut of the process from here on. If you're interested, you can seek that out for yourself. For our purposes, it's more important to look at the callousness he approached it with. Twitchell recounts, Dismembering a human body was a relatively unexciting event. I had ways of making it more fun. I sang to myself as I worked, talked to myself, reflected on the new tools I would get to make the next one easier. This guy just wants to be a serious... He wants to be like Dexter, except he's not. He's just killing an innocent person instead of a horrible murderer. And also, Dexter was a TV show. We shouldn't do that in real life, people, okay? Who knows if that really reflects how he felt or if he was just trying his hardest to imitate Dexter because he thinks being a psychopath is cool. My vote is with the latter. Mine too, Callum. Uh, but it's a tough read regardless. He goes through each step and decides how different the reality of the gore is to the Hollywood versions, proving just how deep he's immersed in his fantasy world. The garage cleanup also took much longer without a montage sequence to speed things along. Twitchell tore down the sheeting and scrubbed all of the stains with ammonia, which would apparently destroy all the DNA in the blood, and there was a lot of blood on the walls, the floor, his clothes. As he thought about how best to get rid of his blood-soaked threads, his wife Tess rang. He had been away for over three hours now, and it was almost 10pm, and he had to spin a lie about going to the gym. But his Tess was already suspicious after she caught him browsing plenty of fish a few days before. Uh-oh! She was probably expecting another affair, but the reality was just a bit worse. He managed to weasel his way out of it for the time being and got back to business. It was at this point that our anti-hero realized that he'd made another glaring mistake. The car of his victim had a manual gearbox, which he was not equipped to deal with. <laughs> so many mistakes. After some trial and error, he managed to conceal it inside the garage and went home to face the missus. She had asked him to stop off at the store for baby formula on the way, but they had all closed by the time he wrapped up at the garage. He got up early in the morning to grab some instead, shifting from killer to father mode while he did so. His daughter was about eight months old by this point, and he spent the Saturday after the killing looking at her, and in his confessions he writes, If anyone ever threatened her happy, innocent existence in any way, I would kill them, cut up the body, and make it disappear. Most people actually say that about their children, only I actually mean it literally. N no, I don't, I think most people are like, well, I don't think my, like, no one's gonna really hurt my kid. Is that why? You know, of course you hear these horrific stories, but it's like, the reality is that's not most of the time. I'm not like, I mean, I would kill anyone. No one thinks that. And I have a kid who's a little bit older, but not much older. I'm not sure people usually add in the part about carving up a corpse. Yes. I'm going to carve up the body. Okay, mate. But I think I get what he means. After an uneventful Saturday with the little one, he gets up early on Sunday to enact the second phase of his plan. This was the digital part, deleting any trace of his fictitious singleton from the victim's computer. The love interest, formerly known as Jen, drove downtown, arrived at the apartment complex where Jim had lived, and let himself in. You might be getting a bit of deja vu now, because we've been here before during another break-in for, for very different purposes. Twitchell hadn't managed to get any passwords from Jim before murdering him, but somehow the bumbling butcher landed on his feet again. All of the accounts he needed to access were still 
logged in. We basically know what happened next. He posted statuses and set up automatic emails which talked about a dream vacation and leaving it all behind. Yes, this was uh, in part one, which feels like a long time ago. After that, he deleted Jim's dating profile and disposed of his printer, which would have had a map to the garage stored in his memory. While doing so, he found a copy of an insurance document with Jim's signature. It was that moment that Twitchell came up with his master plan to deal with the car issue. He would forge a bill of sale and say that he came it by it legally by pure chance. Me, you, and Detective Clark, we're not idiots, so we recognized how unbelievably stupid that story was right off the bat. Twitchell, on the other hand, must have had to grab some more ammonia to clean up all of his gleeful drooling. Dude, I mean... Come on, that's really unbelievable. <laughs> Fast forward to Monday morning, Twitchell checked his to-do list for the day. Buy toothpaste. Pretend to be a film producer. And oh yes, dispose of a body. How was he going to do that? Well, first he packed up all of the pieces into body bags and put them in his car, along with the steel drum. Lit a fire in the barrel and put in the pieces bag by bag. While the torso piece burns, he talks us through an extended reflection about what it probably smells like because Twitchell lacked a sense of smell. He also comments on how humans look like steak inside and how he understands the cannibalistic impulse but isn't really fussed about trying human meat. I guess that makes him a little bit more relatable. Yeah, I mean, I relate to most people because they're just not cannibals. That's, that's enough. <laughs> what do you have in common? Not cannibals. Cool, cool. We'll be friends. He was shaken out of his macabre in a monologue by approaching sirens and started to panic. It must have been a fire engine responding to a neighbor's call about a fire in the backyard, he thought. He doused the flames, and just like that, the sirens coincidentally stopped. It didn't really matter anyway, because the body wasn't actually being incinerated. Twitchell was getting another reality check, realizing that burning a body doesn't work like in the movies. All it had really done was melt the body bag. For now, he would have to wrap it all up and deliver it back to the garage. Yeah, you, but you know this, like, you put a wet log in a fire... Like, an, uh, it's not going to burn properly. I mean, maybe if the fire's really hot and over a long time, but just a random fire you build in a barrel and throw some, like, accelerant on there, it's not going to burn through, like, the human body's, what, 70% water, 60% water? What's the stat on that? It's just not going to burn. When he went home that Monday, he reports seeing spending some time with his daughter before heading online to talk with his mistress, Lacey. I have to remind you that we're reading the memoirs of a painfully insecure guy whose wife wouldn't touch him, so of course, he starts this part with a description of how he's the best Lacey ever had and all of her other boyfriends could only last a few minutes in bed. This guy's, like, got the mind of a teenager. Yes, Twitchell, I'm sure your Jabber and Leia roleplay ses role sessions really are something. He goes on to describe how he was great at sex with his first wife, and how he once had a partner who said, how can anyone go for three hours straight? Can you hear that, everybody? That's the sound of all of our listeners' spines simultaneously contracting. <laughs> so what was Mr. Martial Arts Master great at sex? Totally not a loser's next move. Well, every successful TV show needs some racy sex scenes, and this is where Twitchell slips one into his memoir. That night, he fed a lie to his wife and he drove off to Lacey's apartment. Cue sensual Barry White baseline. I don't know if I'm just jaded to all the blood and guts after doing quite a few of these episodes already, but I actually feel more uncomfortable reading this part than all of the dismemberment. Maybe it's because it's all relayed through Twitchell's unique creative voice. For example, he writes, they kissed passionately in juicy anticipation of what was coming next. Oh, it's cringe, isn't it? It's, it's cringe. It's cringe, and I think there's more cringe coming. In case, they were, in case there are any aspiring writers out there, please, please, please. Never have your characters do anything in juicy anticipation. Likewise, never write about being free to suck on various parts of her body. I'm begging you, please don't. And if you're writing something right now and you wrote that, just take it out. You're doing everyone a favor. 
For everyone else, I promise we're not just lingering here uncomfortably for no reason. There are a few details to extract here beyond Twitchell's cringy boasting. For one, he notes that Lacey had a tattoo on her shoulder of a Celtic cross, one which he designed for her years ago. This sounds curiously similar to the tattoo on the mystery man, who we would later claim brought the car to his garage. And it's unclear whether this is just part of his fantasy world or not, but he also explains how Lacey once contracted a tropical virus that attacked her brain for two years, but in the end, she escaped with her health and her faculties, as well as this smoking hot new body. <laughs> Wait, the virus gave her a smoking hot new body? What is going on? Oh well, as long as the brain virus made her sexier, oh good then. That, I mean, maybe I'm just wrong, but I, maybe there are brain viruses out there that do make you more sexy, and I'm just ignorant of, of said brain viruses. Now that Twitchell got all of that out of his system, we can return to the more important parts of the story. There was still a dismembered body in the garage, and for all he knew, time was running out. After all, it was hardly a clean kill. The victim had left the garage and returned twice. Who knows who he had told during those interludes? So, the day after his visit to Lacey's place, he went back down to the garage to do with a mess once and for all. He put his costume crafting skills to good use and got into character as the trash man. This meant cutting up a plastic sheet into an apron and taping heavy-duty bin bags around his shoes. <laughs> what is going on? After that, he opened the first of the body bags. It had been a few days since the murder, so the joints were starting to seize up from rigor mortis, which, uh, what was left of them anyway. The plan was to strip all of the pieces down and then dump the remains in the river, which ran through the center of town. This meant shaving the meat off them, one by one, sharpening his knives regularly. The way he describes processing the head is extremely graphic and was intended to make sure there was no way to identify it. That meant removing the teeth and essentially deconstructing the skull, stopping only to look at the victim's brain and fascination. That's just my heavily watered down version. Dude, Callum, if that's the heavily watered down version, I'm just glad you read this and I didn't, because that sounds horrible. He then processes the torso, taking the time to muse on cannibalism once again, even though he's totally for sure not a cannibal. He writes, meat is meat, after all. It all tastes like beef or chicken. It's a wonder he even had to bring a blade at all when he himself was so edgy. The awfulness continues with quotes like, oh, Callum, do we have to? <laughs> Why? This experience changed my sense of place in the world forever. I felt stronger, somehow above other people. Things that I said to people would carry double entendres like never before. Oh honey, work was murder today. Would be more literal than Tess would ever know. How very clever, Mark. You big brain genius. Only Twitchell could find that cool, but I feel like he was getting a little ahead of himself, because as it stood, there was a solid chance he would never go on to live the serial killer life he dreamed of. As he drove around with the freshly processed bags of human remains that in his car boot, all it would have taken is one unlucky traffic stop and the whole thing would be over. He was careful, however. He stuck to the speed limits and respected every light on the way, but on the way to where. Amazingly, he decided he was a bit too tired to finish the job, so he decided to head home, leaving the body in his car boot, with plenty of time for all that nice deal. DNA evidence to seep into the lining. Hardly a Dexter-level move. Yeah, Dexter was an extremely competent serial killer who ended up getting away with it. Although, are they making a new Dexter series, or did I imagine that? And you are not this dude. You are a terrible serial killer. Twitchell had other matters to attend to for now, though. His wife was already in bed, so he decided to hop on MSN Messenger, old school, to chat to the other lady in his life. When he talked to Lacey, she was distraught. Apparently, she had been reading some psychology articles and diagnosed her ex-boyfriend with sociopathy. As Twitchell put it, the signs are chronic pathological lying, using and abusing his partner, scamming everybody around him, and treating other people with a total lack of respect or regard for their well-being. The irony, which you're currently sensing, was totally lost on our woefully deficient Dexter. 
Regardless, he did act with some regard for Lacey's well-being that night. When she threatened suicide, he called the police and, using a fake name, directed them to her apartment. When she tells him he overreacted, he throws his toys out of the pram. The next passage is just him ranting about how her last boyfriend, Evan, was a total manipulative loser, and only Twitchell's step-by-step coaching could help her see so. Good thing she had you to protect her from all the manipulators and sociopaths of the world, Twitchell. Yes, well done hero. He then fantasizes about making the ex-boyfriend his next target. He had collected the guy's personal information from Lacey over the past weeks in preparation. After all, and now he had cut his teeth as a killer, it was becoming a very real possibility. First things first, though, the human remains in his car. Our wannabe Dexter woke up in the morning to a barrage of apologies and thanks from Lacey, of course, and he manages to squeeze in a little flex about saving her life. This is so cringe. After patting himself on the back so hard, I'm amazed it did dislocate his shoulder. He sat off in his car under the cover of darkness. Like a deranged Goldilocks, he spent the next few hours searching for a perfect place to dump the body. The first spot, a motorway bridge, was too visible. The second, a rocky patch of riverbank, was too dangerous. But the third spot was just right. He's like Goldilocks and the dead body. This was a stretch of countryside between two farming towns which would have offered the perfect level of seclusion had our idiotic anti-hero not completely wasted all of his time dicking around. By this point, it was getting light and the riverside roads were starting to get busy. Faced with the prospect of yet another failure in his fledgling killing career, Twitchell desperately searched for some sort of alternative. That's when he settled on the most awful, disrespectful method possible. He would dispose of the body in the sewers. After describing the breakfast he stopped for along the way, he details how he traveled to the east side of the city and found the most secluded manhole possible. Then, after heaving off the cover, he cut open the bags and dropped their contents inside. Satisfied that he had finally completed the perfect crime after dozens of blunders and days upon days of procrastination, (laughs) dude, you've committed a crime with so much evidence being left behind, and then you've detailed it in a goddamn screenplay. This is so far from the perfect crime, it's not even funny. He drove back to the garage for the epilogue, a few last things to wrap up before moving on to episode 2. All of the remaining evidence was thrown in the oil drum and burned in the alleyway. Twitchell details how he let the trash burn until the oil was exhausted, dragged the can back out to the garage, poured more oil on, and... No, we're really not buffering right now. That is actually... It just cuts off right there. For some reason, at that point, Twitchell's sorry excuse for a novel found its way into the recycling bin, never to be completed. Why could that ever be? Well, one, because maybe he realized he was writing down his crimes, and two, because maybe he realized his writing was absolute trash. Uh, I doubt both of those things, but I'd like to dream. I like to imagine, as he smugly typed up those last few words, the murderer got a phone call from an unknown number on his cell phone. The phone vibrating on the desk gave him a shock, but not as big as the one he got when he answered. Hello, Mr. Twitchell. This is the Edmonton Police Department. We'd like to ask you a few questions. (laughs) Delete, delete, delete! (laughs) The arrest. We're now back in the police station with Detective Clark. He's just finished reading the most detailed confession ever to find its way onto his desk. Fiction and reality were clearly bleeding into each other, and he must have just been sitting there wondering how much of this text could be believed. It was undeniable that many of the details could be verified right off the bat. There was even a bit of foreshadowing for Twitchell's ridiculous story about his car, but altogether, it raised just as many questions as it answered. Who was the mystery man that got away at the beginning, for example? If you're yet to connect the dots yourself, I might as well mention that the second victim, Jim, was actually the real-life missing man, Johnny. As Twitchell mentions in the beginning, he changed the names a little. His real-life wife, Jess, became Tess, while his mistress, mistress Tracy, became Lacey. <laughs> really, my dude? Come on. Come on. 
Really, that little forward should have read, the names have been changed, but only by one letter, because I, the author, am a moron. So it was safe to assume that SK Confessions was exactly what its title suggested, a true-to-life account. I mean... <laughs> He's exceptional in bed. Let's just say that so, let's just say it was embellished, shall we? Heavily embellished. <laughs> Over a hundred officers have already been mobilized to monitor Twitchell in case he decided to strike again, as he claimed he planned to do so each and every Friday. They checked his social media accounts and discovered that he kept a Facebook profile under the name Dexter Morgan, with which he roleplayed as the lead character from the show. <laughs> Come on, please, no. The evidence was overwhelming, but they were missing the centerpiece, which makes any murder case complete. The body. The text never actually revealed exactly where to find it, and tailing Twitchell, Twitchell hadn't open, offered up any leads. He had been well and truly spooked, fooling the police. It turned out to be much harder than it looked on TV, and reality was flooding in through the punctures in his little fantasy bubble. While the cyber team was busy cracking the laptop, they also found a knife inside the car with some blood staining on it. Dude, the amount of evidence is extraordinary! Whether or not it was real needed to be verified in the lab, nobody was just going to lick it and see if it tasted like corn syrup. Sure enough, it was real blood, and sure enough, it was Johnny's. His DNA was also found in the fabric lining in the car boot, and there was a post-it note inside which Twitchell had written for himself. It was a reminder to A, kill the cook. <laughs> you can't be serious! The twit the thing actually reads, A, Clean the kill room and tools, and B, have sex with Tracy. Obviously, Adam spent quite enough time on A. Dude, you have to be joking. You actually have to be joking. All of this, in conjunction with a computer document, were more than enough for an arrest. I should bloody well hope so. It should be enough for a conviction. On the 31st of October 2008, police captured Twitchell at his parents' house in Edmonton, where he was busy confessing to crimes? <laughs> where he had been staying since the second interview. He was in the basement at the time, working on his Iron Man costume, which is without a doubt the dorkiest sentence you're likely to hear in a true crime web show. <laughs> The DRK Jedi, uh, from his, that's from his license plate, probably had fantasies about blasting the police away with energy beams and rocketing away to safety, but the time for make-believe was over. The grown-ups had arrived to spoil his fun. After taking him down to the station, they charged him with first-degree murder, which he continued to flat-out deny. Dude, you gotta go for the, some sort of bargaining now. That would only last so long, though, because a new character was about to enter the frame who would add even more damning evidence to the pile. This was Frank, the first person lured to the kill room in the memoir. His real name was Gilles Tero? Tetro, maybe? And he was responding to an appeal for information in the local paper. First attack. Basically, his account was the same as in, in Twitchell's hastily deleted novel, minus the parts which make the killer seem like a kung fu master. Gilles was 26 at the time, working as a security guard. He chatted with 24-year-old bombshell Sheena for a few days before agreeing to meet. When he entered the garage, he was pounced upon and beaten, caught completely unawares. As he later told the police, That's when I looked back to see this man hovering over me with a hockey mask. At that instant, I knew there was no date. <laughs> what, the, the attack didn't give it away? His attacker pulled a gun on him and he took a moment to collect himself, thinking his life was about to end at any moment. With a burst of adrenaline, he grabbed the gun, realized it was plastic, and scrambled out of the garage door. Even the part about the awkward encounter with the local couple was the same. 
As for what happened to Gilles after his lucky escape, he took off about as fast as he could, and then he went home to sleep off the pretty brutal beating he had just endured. As he told reporters, I knew I needed to go to the police, but I was ashamed about what had happened to me that I got duped into this man pretending to be a female, so I never told them. I just wanted to get home. I felt so horrible because if I went to the police earlier, I could have maybe saved the guy's life. Yeah, go to the police. Go. Oh, I, I, I couldn't. I thought the reason this guy wouldn't go to the police originally, I think this was in episode one, was because maybe he was like having an affair, like he, he was looking for an affair, but he just didn't want to go to the police because he got beat up. Go to the police if you get beat up by some crazy guy wearing a hockey mask. Pro tip. I really cannot impress upon you enough the importance of reporting this kind of thing. Yes, Callum and I, same page. If you're ever unfortunate enough to have it to you, seriously, it seems like every other episode the killer could have been easily caught if someone had just reported their damn crimes. Still, better late than never. With Jill's story corroborating Act 1 of SK Confessions, the police were finally able to get a proper confession out of Twitchell. He agreed to lead them to the manhole not far from the garage where he dumped Johnny Altinger's remains which were recovered from the sewer. Now they had a body to add to the detailed memoir, confession, and heaps of circumstantial evidence. This was just about everything the police needed to set the DA up for a slam dunk of a trial. If this guy's not going to prison for a very long time, I'm going to be very disappointed. He did murder only one person. This is Canada, who I imagine have shorter jail sentences than the United States, because in the United States, it just seems people go to jail forever. Um, uh, but I, maybe he'll go away for life, because he's totally psycho. Let's see. The Trials Now we are rolling the closing credits on the Dexter phase of this story. Up after the break is Law and Order. Nobody was expecting it to be a particularly long episode on account of the mountains of evidence the prosecution had lined up, but it sure brought plenty of viewers. Under a frenzy of international attention for the Dexter killer, the trial commenced in March 2011. The prosecution set about detailing the damning evidence collected by the police back in 2008. does take a while to get to trial, doesn't it? They were gathering evidence in 2008. He's just been in jail for three years, or... I mean, he can't have been on parole. He murdered someone. So what's going on? Anyway, there was the short film script, emails, the DNA evidence on all the knives and game processing blades, as well as the massive bloodstains in the garage. And of course, the coup de grace, a printout of serial killer confessions, Twitchell's murder diary. His defense team argued that it was no such thing. They claimed it was a dramatized account, really entitled Stephen King Confessions, with parts of it completely invented for dramatic effect. <laughs> Come on, guys, really? And so the prosecution set about presenting as much as support as much supporting evidence as possible. For example, Twitchell really had been given a speeding ticket at the exact time and date mentioned in the text. The traffic cop from that day was one of 46 witnesses called to prove the document was a true-to-life account. The star of the show was Jill's Territro, the, the guy we mentioned earlier. He again repeated his account of arriving at Twitchell's garage, displaying how it perfectly matched the events in the so-called piece of fiction. The killer's response was that yes, he did invite the guy there and attack him, but it was just a prank, bro. Apparently, the whole thing had been part of a viral marketing campaign for House of Cards, kind of like the time Vin Diesel ran me off the motor to drum up hype for Fast and Furious. Even if that was the case, though, how could he explain the very real dead man that he already had been admitted to killing? And given all the murder tools he had stockpiled, how could he even suggest it wasn't premeditated? Sure, he had been shooting a bloody thriller movie in the garage, but the game processing kit wasn't featured in it at all. Why did he have that stuff, if all he planned to do was scare some people for movie marketing? Did you already admit to it, though? You took them to the body. What are you... Surely this is a guilty plea. 
Twitchell's answer was predictably moronic. He claimed that he had a savant power which drove his movies, so his inspiration was greater than that of your average Joe. Savant is a major stretch, but he's not on trial for being a hack. Prosecution lawyer Avril Inglis asked him to clarify, asking, Because of your savant inspiration for your project, you just happen to have all the tools lying around to dismember a body? Twitchell replied, You can paint it as any kind of coincidence you want. No, that's your job, you idiot. They're saying it wasn't a coincidence and that you, I mean, <laughs> Callum even writes in the texts, in the text, sigh, there's no help in this guy. <laughs> that must have been what his defense lawyers were thinking. I mean, they were faced with the fact that their clients had basically admitted to every gruesome detail of a premeditated murder. He even blew his own chances of an insanity plea by explaining just how he would go about it in the memoir. The best thing that they could do was get some parts of serial killer confessions struck from the record during the proceedings. They argued that certain passengers were more sensationalist than would befit a proper criminal trial, so they should be concealed from the jury. These included a few passengers that we didn't have access to either, such as how Twitchell used the skull of his victim as a ventriloquist's dummy, my dude, no, and had a little laugh to himself as he did. Some other lovely tidbits we never got the chance to rip into were how Twitchell was a mega edgelord atheist, and how he plans on killing his ex-boss to remove him from the world's glorious surface. Mega Edgelord. Uh, even with this watered-down but still completely awful version of the memoir, their story would still be a hard sell. Let's find a way to reconcile all the murder and dismemberment with the idea that it was all supposed to be just a harmless prank, bro. Twitchell did this by throwing blame at Altinger. The victim's furious family had to listen as his killer explained how Johnny had attacked him in the garage, forcing him to defend himself. When the struggle ended in his accidental death, he was forced to cut up the body and dispose of it out of fear. As for the actual mechanics of how it happened, he didn't dispute any of it. Apparently, after killing the guy by accident, he was quite capable of chopping him up and throwing him, in a, throwing him in a sewer. Are you convinced? Well, no. <laughs> Nobody was. Verdict and imprisonment. As things began wrapping up, Twitchell passed on the opportunity to address his victim's family. Johnny Altinger's mother then gave a victim impact statement, revealing how she still called her son's cell phone number just to hear him talk on the voicemail message. She told the court, My wishes for the perpetrator of this unforgivable and horrific act to reflect on his actions and die a slow death every day of his life. After five hours of jury deliberations, her wish would be granted. Twitchell was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to 25 to life behind bars. The police officers involved in the case gave a statement to the press outside, celebrating the fact that they captured this ham-fisted slasher before he haphazardly struck again. Bill Clark summed, up, summed it up very nicely, saying, We caught him on his first one, so he's a very poor serial killer, and thankfully he will never become a serial killer. Twitchell was understandably none too happy about the ruling. He went on to launch an appeal on the grounds that the media frenzy around the Dexter Killer trial was so extensive, so blatant, and so overtly sensationalistic that it's unreasonable to expect any unsequestered jury to have remained uninfluenced by it. No, dude. You are a horrible murderer who committed a horrible crime. It doesn't matter how much media there is around it. You go to prison for the rest of your life, as you goddamn should. The appeal was eventually abandoned and Twitchell resigned himself to his fate, a new life behind bars. In a statement given to the papers in 2013, he told them he had managed to secure a cable, t cable TV package for his room and was all caught up on Dexter. Good lord. No word on whether he gave Prison Break a binge, but I would love to see him balls up that one as well. And hopefully, I mean, maybe get shot while doing it. Always say hopefully, but I mean, <laughs> just joking. Was TV to blame? 
No, Calorie. What? <laughs> no. I mean, I've seen Dexter. Number of Dexter episodes I've seen. Loads. Number of people I've killed. Zero. Alleged. <laughs> there was one last thing to cover before we wrap up for the day. Was my granny right after all? Does too much telly really rot your brain? I mean, the Dexter finale got over 2.5 million views, so if it really has the power to create serial killers, then we ought to be pretty worried. But as you probably already guessed, the vast majority of those fans managed to keep their killer impulses under wraps. That's not to say Twitchell was the only one. A couple of superfans from Virginia lured in a victim much like Twitchell and stored his head in their fridge. Uh, quite a few teens have also killed partners and family members after watching the show only jackass and wrestlemania had the don't try this at only jackass and wrestlemania had the don't try this at home warning but apparently there's a solid case for making it a universal requirement i don't think that's going to stop anyone <laughs> however one thing that ties all the dexter inspired killers together is they have severely they were just severely disturbed individuals even without the influence of the show substance abuse and serious mental health issues pop up time and time again which is why the vast majority of people could watch dexter hack and slash his way through miami without treating it like a WikiHow guide and being WikiHow, it would have very helpful cartoon pictures describing everything so no granny it's not that telly rots the brain twitchell was already rotten before the show even premiered jeff lindsay the writer of the books upon which the show is based put it best when he said reading dexter will not make you a killer if you are not already capable of killing another human being in, co in a cold cruel deliberate way no book ever written will make you capable of doing so there are no magic words that will turn you into a psychopath yes totally agree totally agree callum and jeff wrap up so there you have it a modern fable warning against the dangers of getting too immersed in a world of your own making for twitchell murder was just part of one big vanity project the habitual liar's life wasn't panning out the way he hoped so he tried to write a new version of himself in to regain control or rather he plagiarized a new version of himself from his tv hero after the trial johnny outinger's brother gary spoke to the press about how he had co trouble comforting his children when they got scared in the middle of the night he said it's impossible to be honest with them living with the reality that monsters do live among us if it's any consolation though a lot of the monsters are so incompetent their life stories come off more as comedy than horror twitchell's story will likely end behind bars as unsuccessful as a serial killer as a filmmaker he's currently locked up in saskatchewan federal penitentiary not due for release anytime soon don't worry about him though i'm sure all that lightsaber training has served him well on the inside that no, hasn't he's probably not having a good time in prison dismembered appendices number one as it turns out, someone managed to make a creative career out of this whole mess. It wasn't Twitchell, but Tellero, his first attempted victim. After starring in his own real-life courtroom drama, he went on to feature in a load of documentaries about the case and even wrote his own book about surviving the experience. The one who got away. Escape from the kill room. Number two. One last piece of evidence to illustrate Twitchell's trouble separating reality from fiction was his laissez-faire attitude to on-set safety. Actor Richard Barnsley played the killer in House of Cards, and he recounted how Twitchell used the same very real knives during the shoot. He even had to swing a real samurai sword at the actor playing the victim. Something tells me that the guy went on to have a very stern conversation with his agent. <laughs> yeah, it's like, dude, what have you got me into? Number three. If you've been listening along and thinking Twitchell sounds like you're Mr. Right, then you're in luck. Now twice divorced, the Dexter killer hasn't given up online dating just yet. In 2017, it was reported that he was using a site specifically tailored to prison inmates and those who want to date them. Did I mention he's an Edmonton City cosplay champion? Form an orderly line, ladies. This has been a two-part, very long, thick-scripted 
episode of The Casual Criminalist. If you like this two-parter, a kind of deeper exploration on a longer story, please do uh, let me know somehow. You can, um, I'm on Twitter, at Simon Whistler. If you're watching this as a, uh, on, on YouTube, you can leave a comment below. If you are watching it on YouTube, like it. Subscribe to this channel. If you're listening as a podcast, uh, then uh, leave me a review. That would be grand. If you're on Spotify, you can't do any of those things. <laughs> because Spotify doesn't allow subscriptions. Oh, maybe it does allow subscriptions. So subscribe, but you can't like, you can't review. Thanks, Spotify. But really, thank you for listening. And I'll be back real soon with another episode. <laughs>